hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Hi there. For Iconography's fifth anniversary, we're remastering episodes from season one when we were looking at the icons of England, producing them to a higher standard than I had the means to get them to when I was living in London back in 2016. This is a remastered second edition of Iconography's first Christmas episode titled Ebenezer Scrooge from December 2016. You can still find a link to the original first edition of this episode in the episode notes and at iconographypodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this seasonally appropriate dive into Dickens, and be sure to stick around until the end for an afterword with some new insights on recent A Christmas Carol adaptations that I hadn't had the chance to see in 2016. Without further ado, here is the second edition of Iconography Episode 3, Ebenezer Scrooge. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're here for A Muppet Christmas Carol, please collect your tickets first and then join the queue outside. Are you ready? For Gannon Hill, Fozzie Bear. Their correct name is Charles Dickens and Fozzie Bear. <laughs> you gotta call them by their, their formal English names. It's gonna be awesome. Carolyn has informed me that this will be, must be, a yearly Christmas tradition for our family. Not seeing Muppet Christmas Carol at the Prince Charles Cinema in London necessarily, but Muppet Christmas Carol for sure. Or else. So that got me thinking. So there's a major film or television adaptation of Christmas Carol once every four years or so on average. And at least four of those adaptations are traditional fare in enough houses that you could consider them stone-cold Christmas classics. The 1951 version starring Alistair Sim, the Muppets version, of course, the Mickey Mouse version, and the Bill Murray modernization, Scrooged. And then there's the 1970 musical Scrooge, and uh, the versions starring George C. Scott and Patrick Stewart, and these likely have enough adherence to form sizable coalitions of their own. Uh, The Jim Carrey motion capture film is one of the top 10 grossing Christmas films of all time, so it's probably on a lot of DVD shelves, which I'm fine with because it's actually a really good adaptation when it's not a CGI roller coaster. Fun facts. Um, the first Christmas movie was a 1901 silent film adaptation of A Christmas Carol. The first animated Christmas special, the one that inspired Rudolph and Charlie Brown, was Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Politics fact. When the United Nations got worried about the U.S. backing out in 1964, it had Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling write an intriguingly bad modernization, A Carol for Another Christmas, in which surly isolationist Daniel Grudge learns that everyone's problems are America's problems. We're not even getting abstract here, folks, arguing that pretty much every secular Christmas movie is sort of a loose adaptation of A Christmas Carol that the greatest Christmas film of all time is a genius inversion of Dickens' decryal of the selfish elite. Merry Christmas, you wonderful building alone! We don't need it. Even without it, some version of Scrooge is croaking out, Bah, humbug, in some house on our street every day of the holiday season. Which means, if you think about it, outside of World War II, there may be no time period we see depicted as often as early Victorian England. Thanks to Ebenezer Scrooge, we have a yearly appointment with the snow-covered streets of the city of London, a freezing counting house where a clerk shivers, a nephew keeps his Christmas cheer, 
And those two solicitors take hilariously long to get that Scrooge is not going to give them any money. Come in and know me better, man. I am the podcaster of Christmas Present, Charles Gustine, and this is Iconography, a podcast dedicated to the geography of icons, real and imagined. This week, we're leaning pretty heavily into the imagined. At the outset of this project, I said that dreamed up places, platform nine and three quarters, and dreamed up people, Mr. Potter, and dreamed up things, were just as iconic and just as important to forming the picture we have of a place, and the picture that place has of itself, as the features you can see on a skyline. Seeing a picture of Big Ben calls up some immediate associations with Britishness, to be sure. But seeing a lightning-shaped scar and some glasses, or a lonely crutch resting on an empty stool, calls up a whole universe of associations. And these associations are of an imaginary Britain, okay. (laughs) But for many people, the imaginary Britain is the realest Britain they're ever going to get. Many might prefer it. Many British people might prefer it to the real Britain, because reality involves traffic, harsh economic realities, and campaign ads, and it doesn't involve magic wands or sonic screwdrivers. A Christmas Carol is especially durable in this regard because, as the title suggests, it's bound to come up at least once a year as fodder for all sorts of media. Sitcoms, comic books, your local playhouse... On Saturday Night Live, it can come up in shorthand, and we all get it. What's that sound? Is it a ghost? Am I being Scrooged? I hate that. Scrooged. And because its definitive version predates television, video games, film, comics, A Christmas Carol can be adapted over and over again without being called a remake, like an adaptation of It's a Wonderful Life or The Grinchwood. A Christmas Carol has always been adapted. There were pirate versions popping up in theaters pretty much as soon as people had read the thing, and it will always be adapted. Because of this, A Christmas Carol is as essential today as it was in 1843, probably more so. It's likely that 200 years from now, we will still be having it fed to us through our story intake tubes every Christmas time, which by that point will probably be every day but April 27th through May 15th. What keeps it so vital? International terrorism. Freeway killers. Now, more than ever, it's it is important, important to remember the, the true, true meaning of Christmas. Christmas. Don't miss Charles Dickens' immortal classic, Scrooge. Your life might just depend on it. All right, you got me. That's not a real promo for a real adaptation of A Christmas Carol. That's Frank Cross's promo for his adaptation in the 1988 Bill Murray comedy, Scrooged. Not bad, huh? But it does scratch an uncomfortable itch when it comes to Christmas comfort food. During Christmas, we escape what is happening now, and we crawl into this carefully constructed simulacra of the past. It's a little bit manger, a little bit North Pole and some old England, and our dreams of a white Christmas, and of course, our favorite family holiday traditions that have been handed down to us. Christmas is the only time of year when we make it a point to go back and visit the same songs, the same movies, 
the same books. Every other time of year, we're looking for new experiences. That new jam, the big blockbuster, the buzzy show. But in December, we're more than happy to climb back into a cocoon of beloved experiences. A Charlie Brown Christmas, Bing Crosby and Nat King Cole, Claymation, God bless us, everyone. But there aren't any good new Christmas movies. And the Christmas specials today suck. And there hasn't been a great Christmas single since All I Want for Christmas is You, which came out in like the mid-90s and sounds like the mid-60s. I hear you. I do. But it's not for lack of trying. There are still new Christmas specials and Christmas albums and Christmas movies, but let's use new with some reservations. The singer may be different, but the songs are usually the same. The messages are familiar. We want them that way. The Christmas film, the Christmas special, and the Christmas song aren't so much dead as undead. They find success occasionally in the 21st century, but usually by hearkening back to a time when Christmas entertainment had a rosy glow on its cheek. Or at least we perceived it as such. We know what a nativity story should look and sound like. Cute kids in ill-fitting shepherd costumes flubbing their lines adorably. And we know what carolers should look and sound like. Top hats and bonnets, please, and do not stray from the standards. And we know what Christmas pop music should sound like. Like the day after VE Day, with sleigh bells. These things are frozen in amber. As Christmas has grown as an institution into an entire holiday season, the idea of it as a cultural institution has stagnated. Because the more Christmas permeates our lives, the more we know what Christmas should feel like. Because commercials and movies told us what it should be like. From Hallmark, a wish that all our families can be together this Christmas. There are four golden days of Christmas. The first Christmas, when a king was born in Bethlehem. Any Christmas, when Victoria was queen. Some 1940s Christmas, when Bing Crosby was duetting with Nat King Cole, and all a kid could want was a Red Ryder BB gun. And of course, the Christmas when you were eight, and you got that one bread. I mean, oh my god. Do you remember how excited you were when you opened that? I come here not to criticize, but to classify. Gathering around every year to watch a Muppet Christmas Carol may be a family's most cherished yearly ritual. It's beautiful. But it's also a bit meta, right? Because it harkens back to the Christmas that tradition first started, when parents first shared Fozzie Wig with their children. But it also harkens back to a time when Muppets were at the center of culture. And then beyond that, it harkens back to Dickens' time, to snowy London streets where street urchins sing carols. There's this great story in Pete Brown's history of the George Inn in London. Uh, it's called Shakespeare's Local, where a bunch of people in frock coats and gingham dresses have a lavish dinner party in the George Inn. They wassail, uh, and they snapdragon, which is like bobbing for apples except there's alcohol in an open flame. Carolers carol outside. It's 1936. The Times goes out of their way to make fun of these revelers, the Dickens Society. Perhaps the guests were thankful for the facilities provided by London Transport to take them on from a world of make-believe and sentiment to the realities of Christmas present. Brown does a great job in his book of characterizing the sudden rise of nostalgia as we know it today, 
as it rose up in the years after World War I with its machine guns and mustard gas. Not nostalgia as a melancholy for home that's considered an actual illness, but nostalgia as an ache for the way things used to be, even if you never actually experienced those things personally. At the heart of this ache is Charles Dickens, by far the most popular writer in England and America in the 1920s and 30s, despite his being very much not alive anymore. And to get even more nostalgiaception, there's nostalgia within Dickens' text for Fezziwig's Rocking Party, but there's also nostalgia without. Dickens has plenty of political reasons to tell his Christmas carol, and we'll get to those. But really, he's just a guy dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones he used to know. There is nothing in England that exercises a more delightful spell over my imagination than the lingerings of the holiday customs and rural games of former times. They recall the pictures my fancy used to draw on the May morning of life, when as yet I only knew the world through books, and believed it to be all that poets had painted it. And they bring with them the flavor of those honest days of yore, in which, perhaps with equal fallacy, I am apt to think the world was more home-bred, social, and joyous than at present. I regret to say they are daily growing more and more faint, being gradually worn away by time, but still more obliterated by modern fashion. That may sound like a dispatch from the front lines of today's War on Christmas, but in fact, that's Washington Irving, the proud papa of American literature, of whom Dickens was a massive fan. And he is waxing rhapsodic about his time in England in the 18-teens. Around that time, which is actually the time of Dickens' birth, antiquarians began seriously lamenting the loss of Christmas as a grand civic celebration, and there was a movement to reclaim the traditions of old. Some of these traditions were completely made up or misrepresented, and some never caught on, and some still define our Christmas today. A seminal text in this movement was Thomas K. Hervey's 1836 The Book of Christmas, which was a guide to reclaiming Christmas. To enable our readers to do this with due effect, we will endeavor to furnish them with a program of some of the more important ceremonies observed by our hardy ancestors on the occasion, and to give them some explanation of those observances which linger still, although the causes in which their institution originated are becoming gradually obliterated, and although they themselves are falling into a neglect which augurs too plainly of their final and speedy extinction. It is alas but too true that the spirit of hardy festivity in which our ancestors met this season has been long on the decline, and much of the joyous pomp with which it was once received has long since passed away, gradually disappeared before the philosophic pretensions and chilling pedantry of these sage and self-seeking days. From a period of high ceremonial and public celebration, which it long continued to be in England, the Christmas tide has tamed away into a period of domestic union and social festivity. Dude, don't sound so bummed. <laughs> I mean, Hervey makes domestic union and social festivity sound awful. Christmas hadn't died. It had found a home in the home. Homes like Bob Cratchit's, where the best dinner of the year was had, and toasts were made, and, yeah, chestnuts were roasted on an open fire. People still celebrated Christmas in whatever way made their family and friends happiest. You could say that that meant that Christmas had gone into hiding. I think it's more that it had become 
de-standardized. Since Oliver Cromwell's government had banned it 200 years prior, even after Charles II had restored it along with restoring the monarchy, the holiday had lost its gravitational center, and its orbit had become increasingly erratic. So no, Dickens didn't invent Christmas. He didn't really even popularize it after years of decay. But he did do something really critical. He provided it with an extremely popular, and unprecedentedly popular, template for how Christmas should feel, and how it shouldn't feel. It shouldn't feel lonely. It should feel generous. It should feel reflective, nostalgic even, though he wouldn't have used that word. And cold. It should feel very, very cold. In his biography of Charles Dickens, Simon Callow says, He was consciously reviving an uh, early, more personal sort of Christmas. The very snowiness he immortalizes was not an early Victorian phenomenon. The 30s and 40s had seen a series of particularly uh, mild winters, but a deep and passionate reversion to the Christmases of his own childhood. It was the measure of his genius and the power of his relationship with his readers that he forged all these disparate elements into one overwhelming symbol, making Christmas the point of intersection of the whole life of society, at which a huge effort of benevolence, of generosity, and of integration could be harnessed to heal the running wound at the heart of his own times. So what keeps Scrooge so vital? Well, you could say the fact that we keep reusing him. You could say that his incredible endurance as an icon comes down to the fact that we keep putting him, or characters acting in his stead, through the same paces, over and over again. Introduction, Ghost 1, Ghost 2, Ghost 3, Conclusion. That this all goes far beyond anything Dickens could have imagined. Of course it does. But I think so much of what makes Scrooge so incredible and indelible is right there in the man that wrote him. So, let's put aside the death of the author for just a bit, and bring the author back to life. I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? Your past. Rise and walk with me. At the Charles Dickens Museum in Holborn, there's a mirror. Now, while Dickens was quite a meticulous dresser, foppish, a dandy even, that's not why this mirror is significant. This mirror was a storytelling portal. Like a Disney animator, like the folks who brought Scrooge McDuck and Mickey Mouse to life in their 1983 adaptation of Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens would sit in front of a big mirror to get into character. Long before he toured Britain and America giving public readings of his work, he would sit in front of his mirror and he'd make faces and he'd do voices for his own benefit. He'd hunch over and scowl as he invented Ebenezer Scrooge. And then he'd puff out his chest and belly laugh as he invented the ghost of Christmas present. He'd become kind little Bob Cratchit and weep when Tiny Tim's loss became his loss. My little child. My little, little child. Pause. 
What is the face staring back at you in the mirror? What does it look like? What are its contours and its lines? Who is Charles Dickens in 1843 during the six weeks? Yeah, six weeks. I know. Crazy. <laughs> that he's writing a Christmas carol. Well, I won't blame you if all you've got is this. My name is Charles Dickens. And my name is Rizzo the Rat. Hey, wait a huh? second. You're not Charles Dickens. I am too. No, a blue furry Charles Dickens who hangs out with a rat. A furry alien? I think we established he was an alien, right? If you do have a mental image of the real Dickens, it's probably the Charles Dickens that Simon Callow plays in Christopher Eccleston's third Doctor Who episode. Charles Dickens, you're brilliant, you are. Completely, 100% brilliant. I've had them all. Great expectations, all the twists. And what's the other one? The, the, the one with the ghost? Christmas Carol? No, 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 no. The one with the trains. The signalman. That's it. Terrifying. The best short story ever written. You're a genius. You want me to get rid of him, sir? Uh, no, I think he can stay. The Charles Dickens of photographs. Most of which show a man in his late 40s or 50s, with deep canyons below his eyes, and with hair that's in full retreat from the forehead, but that's got a lot going on around both ears. Oh, and of course, there's the absolutely legendary goatee, the kind of goatee that hell's angels want for Christmas. Even his earliest photographs from 1849 give an honest account of a man approaching middle age, clean-shaven but nearing 40. We like photographs because they don't lie, or um, they don't lie as much as portraits and sketches do. At least they don't go out of their way to flatter. Most Dickens photos don't flatter. They show a man who died at 58, looking 78. But paintings and sketches of young Charles definitely do flatter, as do contemporary descriptions of him, like this one. He is young and handsome. He has a mellow, beautiful eye, fine brow, and abundant hair. His mouth is large, uh, and his smile so bright it seemed to shed light and happiness all about him. In depictions from 1843, Dickens looks like a freshman theater major with the college freshman's mane of hair that says, Mom's not making me cut my hair anymore. I had one. He has Fabio hair, and his eyes are beautiful, dreamy, giant, heavy-lidded. He looks like Beast from Disney's Beauty and the Beast when he's not all furry. Which is funny because Dan Stevens, who is playing Beast in 2017's live-action Beauty and the Beast remake, is also appearing as Christmas Carol period Dickens in a 2017 film called The Man Who Invented Christmas. But really, he kind of looks more like Beast in the portrait of him before he got transformed, when he was a kid. Charles is just 31 in 1843, and doesn't look it. 31 is impossibly young as it is. He's just a bit past the cutoff for the Victorian age's 30 under 30 list, if such a thing had existed. But don't worry, he's definitely already made the hypothetical list twice, once for Pickwick Papers and once for Oliver Twist. And he probably made it under the pen name Boz back when he was 23 or 24 as well. Rest assured, Charles could disappear from the earth at 31, before David Copperfield, Great Expectations, Hard Times, A Tale of Two Cities... He could disappear, and his legacy would already be set not merely as a rising star, but as one of the most important authors of his time, and of all time, as a defining voice of Britain. That's the man in the mirror. A young man who wants to be an actor, to run a theater, to edit a weekly periodical, if not a daily periodical, and to perfect conjuring tricks and hypnotism, all while writing installments of Martin Chuzzlewit and the whole of A Christmas Carol simultaneously. 
To get inspiration, he takes vigorous walks through London on the daily. He describes his writing process for Carol as such. Charles Dickens wept and laughed and wept again and excited himself in the most extraordinary manner in the composition and thinking whereof he walked about the black streets of London fifteen, twenty miles many a night when all the sober folk had gone to bed. This compulsive night walker has got four kids with another on the way. He loves planning parties. He writes so many letters to so many friends, it's dizzying. He just spent half a year in America, which he hated, to his surprise, as much as to the surprise of Americans. And on top of all that, he's a tireless social crusader, happy to play England's Jiminy Cricket in stories, articles, and brilliant speeches. I promise I won't evoke Hamilton every episode, but I can't help sounding like Burr shouting, Hamilton wrote the other 51! Every time I think about Charles Dickens, the man is non-stop. Dickens could not be more different from his most enduring creation, that squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, covetous old sinner. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug, there goes Mr. Grimm, if they gave a prize for being me. And yet there's more than a little bit of Charles Dickens in Ebenezer Scrooge, as we'll investigate. A bit of who Dickens has been, who he is, and maybe a bit of who he fears he might become. And I think it's that hint of authorial empathy that ends up being the key to Scrooge's enduring appeal. The narrator may treat Scrooge with nothing but contempt, but the author is a very creative and very sensitive young man who can't help but empathize with every one of his characters, even the ones who stand for everything he rails against. They are all staring back at him in the mirror, after all. The serial Dickens is in progress on when he writes A Christmas Carol, Martin Chuzzlewit, which, if you're not very versed in Dickens, you might think is a name I just made up to sound Dickensian, which kind of proves the following point, is his first major commercial failure as a writer. He even begrudgingly has to return 50 pounds to his publishers. I've got to say, the American bit of Martin Chuzzlewit, what's that about? Was that just padding or what? I mean, it's rubbish, that bit. I thought you said you were my fan. Oh, well, if you can't take criticism... Now, I say failure as a writer because Dickens is no stranger to hardship. When he was 12, his father was sent to Marshalsea Debtors Prison, and his whole family went with him, except for Charles, who had a, I hesitate to say a job, who was compelled to work at a blacking factory where he glued labels onto bottles. He lived with a mean old lady, and he made barely enough to support himself during that year. No one knows this about Charles Dickens in 1843. He won't even admit it to his closest friend for a few years. Dickens carried this around like a burden, this feeling that his childhood had been stolen from him by parents who couldn't see how important those formative years were to him, by a broken system. As much as Dickens invented the notion of Christmas as we know it, he invented our notion of childhood. In Oliver Twist and Tiny Tim and many future heroes and heroines, he provided a critical template for seeing children as experiencing something magical that needed safeguarding, childhood, as opposed to seeing them as little adults with little fingers that could perform manufacturing tasks that big adult fingers couldn't. When Dickens saw the second report of the Children's Employment Commission, he was perfectly stricken down by the sleek, slobbering, bow-polched, overfed, apoplectic, snorting cattle that could create such a thing. 
So Scrooge is his straw man. Simple as that. I hate people. I hate people. Dickens starts from the evils of his day, namely the dragon of ignorance, as he put it in one speech. And then he works backwards to create the perfect embodiment of their perpetrator. Mr. Prisons, Workhouses, and Surplus Population. Easy enough. But then Dickens does something rather remarkable after creating this wheezing miser, this odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man. He takes us back into his past, and there's this lonely boy. A boy with nothing but a thousand and one nights and Robinson Crusoe to comfort him. A boy not unlike Dickens himself, abandoned by his family. Though Dickens only wishes his abandonment could have been at a school. Both Scrooge and Dickens have sisters named Fan. You can't tell me Dickens did not consciously put a bit of himself in Scrooge. I think some bits unconsciously slipped in as well. If the representations I have so often made to you about my working as duty, and not as pleasure, be not sufficient to keep you in the good humor which you, of all people in the world, should preserve, why then, my dear, you must be out of temper, and there is no help for it. If a feeling of you know not what, a capricious restlessness of you can't tell what, and a desire to tease you don't know why, give rise to it, overcome it. It will never make you more amiable, I more fond, or either of us more happy. Maybe you think I'm reading from some Christmas Carol deleted scene, something that explains why Belle leaves Scrooge on that bench. But in fact, that is from the courtship of Catherine Dickens, nay Hogarth, and Charles Dickens. Charles is more than a little bit of a jerk when it comes to Catherine, and that does not go away. It gets much worse. He'll end up spending years shaming her for her weight gain and her clumsiness, and eventually, after 22 years of marriage and 10 children, plus multiple miscarriages, he'll end up divorcing her, never seeing her again, and taking up with a much younger woman. Or, as Simon Callow puts it in his biography, In other words, he behaved like many men who have fallen out of love with their wives, except that he was Charles Dickens, and everything in his behavior was proportionately magnified. One of those magnified aspects is Dickens' nature as a workaholic. As previously stated, the man was non-stop. He was constantly working on a deadline for some serial article or editorship, and he never let that stop him from engaging in countless side projects. What began as a young man's vigorous ambition, oh, humor him, he's coming up in the world, it turned rather sad. He ended up estranged from most of his children, and obviously estranged from his wife, and he subjected himself to an American tour late in his life that one son thought was essentially what killed him. He couldn't stop. You're a partner and you're in fun now. Barely clearing expenses. You said the partnership was the goal. This is for you. I love you, Bill. You did once. The bell scenes, where Scrooge's fiancée ends their engagement, and where we visit her and her husband the day Marley died, those have always struck me as the least convincing part of A Christmas Carol. They act as a signpost to show us that at some point the carefree clerk at Fezziwigs was consumed by greed, without really pinpointing when or why that change occurred. Side note. I really love what the 1951 Alistair Sim version does to flesh out this progression. It provides Fan's death 
as the tipping point. Belle has to do a lot of heavy lifting in her breakup speech to help us understand what a young Scrooge might have acted like. But now, knowing a bit more about Charles and Catherine's courtship, about her begging him to stop working so much and him unable to be a mere mortal man, striving for more while telling her to be quiet already, it adds this sort of haunting dimension to Belle and Ebenezer. I think there's a smidgen of projection going on here on Charles Dickens' part. And maybe it's intentional? Probably it's not. I'm just saying he knows from dismissive fiancé. It was almost love. It was almost always. It was like a fairy tale. We live out you and I. And yes, some dreams come true. So what then becomes the difference between Scrooge and Dickens? If we accept that boy Scrooge is basically boy Dickens, and that young clerk Scrooge is full-on nostalgia Dickens, and that park bench Scrooge is this shadow projection of Dickens' own workaholic tendencies, where do they branch off? Where does one become this miserable miser and the other a social crusader? Would it be trite to say the adoration of the people? I know that makes it sound like Dickens was an egomaniac and that we should all strive to be adored. But Dickens had a fascinating relationship with fame. He saw it as a two-way street. As in, you saw him, sure. He was going to go out of his way to see you. And this is the other big thing to understand about Dickens. Probably the reason he sounds so harsh when his wife asked him to stop writing so darn much. Dickens had a need, a compulsive need, that bordered on obsession to be ever-present in people's living rooms, to see them and make them feel seen. Because Dickens published all his novels serially, he was sometimes less like a novelist, as we think of novelists, and more like a writer on scandal or empire, checking Twitter to see how the audience is reacting to the work. He could gauge their feelings, take the temperature of the room. He could take inspiration from their hopes, or he could toy with those hopes, or he could crush them as he did with little Nell in the old curiosity shop. But he cared deeply what they felt. There's a great story about Dickens essentially pouring his heart into his sort of veiled autobiography, David Copperfield. And he gets a letter from a woman who realizes that she is the inspiration for one of the story's misanthropes, the dwarf Miss Moucher. I have suffered long and so much from my personal deformities, but never before with the hands of so gifted a man as Charles Dickens. Now you make my nights sleepless, and my daily work tearful. So Charles Dickens, touched, changes the entire nature of the character on the spot. He changes his story, how he planned for it to go. Dickens' penchant for serialization allowed it. But it could also only happen because Dickens was uncommonly sensitive to his readers. Any reader. I would at once sit down upon their very hearths and take a personal and confidential position with them. That's Dickens' pitch for The Cricket, a weekly periodical he was proposing that would allow him to maintain a more constant companionship with his readers. The idea eventually petered out, though it would serve as the inspiration for his third Christmas story, The Cricket on the Hearth. But he'd end up pitching a similar idea, The Shadow, a few years later. A cheerful, a useful, and always welcome shadow, which may go into any place and be in all homes and all nooks and corners, and be supposed to be cognizant of everything, and go everywhere without the least difficulty. Now that has to sound familiar. 
Much they saw, and far they went, and many hounds they visited, but always a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful. On foreign lands, and they were close at home. By struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope. By poverty, and it was rich, in almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man and his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessings and taught Scrooge his precepts. It's this act that changes Scrooge, the act of seeing, of experiencing. This is the undying optimism of Charles Dickens shining through. Not in the disbelief that there are harsh corners of the world, no one depicted them more vividly. No, that optimism is in this adamant belief that no man, no matter how hard-hearted, no matter how cruel, no matter how ignorant, could truly see and not change his ways. Be made to see the world Dickens saw on his 20-mile walk through the slums and change his mind, change his perception, change his behavior. Think about Marley and his fellow spirits. It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men. If it goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. In A Christmas Carol, hell isn't being sequestered away in some fiery domain, separate from the world of the living. No, it's being able to finally see the world, and not being able to do a thing about it. This is the gift the ghosts give to Scrooge, and the Dickens gifts to England. The ability to be magically transported in an instant, from mines to ships to homes as different as those of Bob and Fred, and from the past to the future. It's this kaleidoscopic, fast-paced journey into people's homes, onto their hearths. That's why my favorite adaptation of A Christmas Carol is also one of the shortest, an animated half-hour from 1971, directed by Richard Williams and executive produced by Chuck Jones, two of the greatest animators of all time. The ghosts in this are bone-chilling. Business! Mankind was my business! This adaptation stars Alistair Sim, actually, returning to the role he perfected in 1951, 20 years later. Seriously, Sim is the best Scrooge that there's ever been. Maybe it's because the prolonged flashback section gives us a better idea of who Scrooge is, but Sim really gets Scrooge. He gets how Scrooge wouldn't yell his pronouncements or growl them. He just says them, like people say things they believe on a daily basis. And he gets how pathetically funny this guy is in the face of his hauntings. You will be visited by three spirits. What? Was that the chance of hope that you mentioned, Chicken? It was. In that case, never mind. I think I'd rather not. But then, 20 years later, in this 1971 version, he's passable. He's not meant to be a voice actor, I don't think. are you, are you the spirit, sir, who, 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 whose coming was foretold to me? And that's the biggest disappointment about it. But to be fair, he doesn't have a lot of time to make an impression. This thing is rocketing along once the ghosts show up. And this is the beauty of this adaptation. If the 1951 movie is a case study for how you expand on a classic, giving it new life by addition, then the 1971 version is its soulmate. 
This is how you find the stripped-down essence of a story and give it new life by subtraction. Because think about all the Christmas carols you've ever seen. Every adaptation always does the same scenes, right? We measure an adaptation by those standards, so we get the whole scene. And these are the greatest hits, the whole Cratchit dinner, the whole bed curtain scene at Old Joe's. And now that the adaptation is running short on time, we usually end up having to elide over countless other great scenes. The Miners, Innocence and Want, Revisiting Belle, Seeing the Spirits Outside the Window, Wanting to Help That Mother and That Baby. These are the B-sides. The brilliance of the 1971 cartoon is that it treats the greatest hits and the B-sides exactly the same. It hits pretty much everything that Dickens wrote, but in these loose, psychedelic sketches, using just enough of Dickens' dialogue to give you the essentials, but never overstaying the welcome. Just as you're getting acclimated, boom. Quick cut, strobe light, and you're in the next place. Oh, good heavens. I was a boy here. This is really important because it's not just seeing Tiny Tim, or seeing Belle, or seeing his own grave that brings Scrooge around. If you believe it's any one of those things, then his transformation is unconvincing. It's seeing all of it. Every last scrap. Scrooge is finally able to see what Marley only saw upon dying and he realizes it's never too late to change. This is the power of Ebenezer Scrooge. With a thankful heart, with an endless joy, with a growing family, every girl and boy will be nephew and niece to me. Nephew and niece to me. Will bring love, hope, and peace to me. Love, hope, and peace to me. Yes, and every night will end, and every day will start with a grateful prayer and a thankful heart. I'm going to leave you guys with a snippet from an article that Dickens wrote in his weekly periodical, Household Words. And yeah, he did finally do it. He finally got a weekly periodical and found his way into people's homes. It's called What Christmas Is As We Grow Older. And based on that title, based on the fact that Dickens had lost his father, lost his sister, and lost an infant daughter in 1851, the year it was written, I assumed this would be an absolute bummer to read. And it's not. And I think it perfectly evokes the spirit of Ebenezer Scrooge's transformation. As we grow older, let us be more thankful of the circle of our Christmas associations and of the lessons that they bring expands. Let us welcome every one of them and summon them to take their places by the Christmas hearth. Welcome old aspirations glittering creatures of an ardent fancy to your shelter underneath the holly. We know you and have not outlived you yet. Welcome old projects and old loves, however fleeting, to your nooks among the steadier lights that burn around us. Welcome everything. Welcome alike what has been and what never was and what we hope may be to your shelter underneath the holly. To your places round the Christmas fire, where what is sits open-hearted. In yonder shadow do we see obtruding furtively upon the blaze an enemy's face. By Christmas Day we do forgive him. If the injury he has done us may admit of such companionship, let him come here and take his place. If otherwise, unhappily let him go hence, assured that we will never injure nor accuse him. On this day we shut out nothing. 
Pause, says a low voice. Nothing? Think. On Christmas Day, we will shut out from our fireside nothing. Not even the shadow of a vast city where the withered leaves are lying deep, the voice replies. Not the shadow that darkens the whole globe. Not the shadow of the city of the dead. Not even that. Of all the days in the year, we will turn our faces towards that city upon Christmas Day, and from its silent hosts bring those we loved among us. City of the dead, in the blessed name wherein we are gathered together at this time, and in the presence that is here among us according to the promise we will receive, and not dismissed by people who are dear to us. Yes, we can look upon these children, angels that alight so solemnly, so beautifully, among the living children by the fire, and can bear to think how they departed from us. We had a friend, who was our friend from early days, with whom we often pictured the changes that were to come upon our lives, and merrily imagined how we would speak and walk and think and talk when we came to be old. His destined habitation in the city of the dead received him in his prime. Shall he be shut out from our Christmas remembrance? Would his love have so excluded us? Lost friend, lost child, lost parents, sister, brother, husband, wife, we will not discard you so. You shall hold your cherished places in our Christmas hearts and by our Christmas fires and in the season of immortal hope and on the birthday of immortal mercy we will shut out nothing. That is where the original Ebenezer Scrooge episode ended back in 2016. Now, it turns out I was not the only person crafting a narrative about the story behind A Christmas Carol in 2016 who thought that Dickens' words from What Christmas Is As We Grow Older would make for an ideal way to send the audience out on a high note. In the season of hope, we will shut out nothing from our firesides and everyone will be welcome. Welcome what has been and what is and what we hope may be to this shelter underneath the holly. That British accent, much better than my own, belongs to actor Dan Stevens, who, as mentioned in the original episode, took on the role of Charles Dickens circa 1843 in the 2017 film The Man Who Invented Christmas, a period piece following the author around in the weeks leading up to the blockbuster success of A Christmas Carol. It's a film which I can say now that I've actually seen it in preparation for the second edition release is somehow both pretty boilerplate as movies about tempestuous but brilliant artists go. I mean, listen to that triggery sweet ending. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. <laughs> and those on the way. <laughs> a toast. And it's also a supremely strange, remarkably literal meditation on the creative process which you wouldn't necessarily know from hearing that clip, but which you would know if you could see it, because the film ends 
with Christopher Plummer as Scrooge, surrounded by other characters from the novella A Christmas Carol, all of whom have spent much of the runtime of the film quarreling with and making fun of a harried Charles Dickens, um, but who are now smiling approvingly uh, from upstairs as they hear Charles warmly embrace his family, essentially as they witness him inventing Christmas. I don't think I could have anticipated how hyper-relevant The Man Who Invented Christmas would be when I saw it coming up on the horizon in 2016. I mean, obviously, like, I knew a movie about Dickens writing A Christmas Carol would be relevant to my interests, but I had no way of knowing how far it would go in dramatizing some of the core themes of the episode, making subtext text. In the film, we meet Charles Dickens at a low point. Under pressure to write a crowd-pleasing success after the failure of Martin Chuzzlewit and the stress of his not entirely enjoyable whirlwind American tour. On a whim, he commits to writing a Christmas ghost story about a miser being shown the error of his ways, and he additionally commits to getting it out, complete with illustrations and gilded binding, by Christmas, which is only a few weeks away. And across those weeks, Dickens has to reckon with his own, yes, uh, his past, present, and potential future, encountering the three ghosts of Christmas alongside his new creation, Ebenezer Scrooge, as Dickens is dreaming them up. That means our protagonist has two dramatic conflicts that he has to work to overcome. One is simply a matter of time. In order to get out of debt and out of the literary doghouse, he needs to do the nigh-impossible and crank out a masterpiece in just six weeks, in time to get it on store shelves for the holidays. Which leads to all sorts of hijinks, and quite a few shouting matches about distractions and the need for quiet and space. All of this is complicated by Charles's other crisis, this one of a more existential variety. You see, Charles can't bring himself to write the end of the book the way that everyone seems to think he should, with Scrooge embracing his transformation, rewriting the future, and keeping Tiny Tim out of an early grave. Scrooge must save him! Me? He wouldn't. Why? Well, he's too selfish. He can change. There's good in him somewhere. I know it. People don't change. He's been this way for a long time. I'm not sure he can change. Of course he can. He's not a monster. As the clock ticks and the calendar pages fly by, he frets and he toos and froze as his characters mock him about his writer's block forcing him to wrestle with his firm belief that men like Scrooge cannot change, not even if they're confronted with damnation by visitors from the spiritual realm. According to the film, Charles conceived of this book to punish the Scrooges of the world, and that's what he believes they deserve. Punishment. Men like Scrooge deserve the chains they're destined to bear. They don't deserve redemption. Of course, what Charles comes to realize, what he needs to realize in order to unlock his compassion and unblock his quill pen, is that, and tell me if this sounds familiar, there is more Scrooge in him than he would care to admit, both in who he has been and who he is at risk of becoming, and he needs to learn to, in words his wife Catherine doesn't explicitly use when dressing him down, but which I think are apt, uh, check himself before he wrecks himself when it comes to balancing his literary life and his actual life. You knew what I was like when you married me. Yes, I did. But you have... No idea what it's like to live with you. To be always walking on eggshells, trying to guess your mood, to know which of your commands are a whim and which are in earnest. Sometimes I... I feel your characters matter more to you 
than your own flesh and blood. In particular, it's long past time for him to face head-on the trauma of his childhood days spent working in a blacking factory while his family was in debtor's prison, allowing himself the capacity to forgive. To forgive his father, to forgive himself, to forgive anyone who hasn't yet seen the light. When I said the film makes this stuff literal, I was not kidding. The climax of the film involves Charles visiting the ruined blacking factory where he once worked, which in actuality had been torn down for over a decade by this point. So this is your miserable secret. The famous author, the inimitable Charles Dickens, was once a scabby little factory boy. Where he proceeds to, and I swear this is true, get yelled at for a few minutes by Ebenezer Scrooge about how useless he is. People don't change, Charlie. Look around you. You're still the same scabby boy. Useless, just like your father. Until he turns the tables on Scrooge and hears him mule out from his grave that he doesn't want to die this way, that he wants to change. With that established, Charles can now write the ending we all know he's meant to write, and on his way to racing to the printers before the deadline, he forgives or is forgiven by many people. The maid he fired, his loyal friend, his father, his aggrieved wife. God bless us, everyone. It's also alarmingly close to the ideas about Dickinson Scrooge that I laid out in our episode on Christmas Carol that I really wish I liked it more. The fact that this all comes off as pat and oversimplistic in the movie makes me worry that it's the ideas that are bad and not the movie's execution of them. But I'm going to stand by my guns. The Man Who Invented Christmas comes as close as you can get to the point while still missing it. I don't dislike the movie for the record. I'm not afraid to say that the scene where Charles holds the bound copy of A Christmas Carol in his hands for the first time, tears welling up as he leafs through its gilded pages, may have welled up a tear or two in me as well. But I think the man who invented Christmas's thematic approach to taking Charles Dickens on a three-spirit journey into his own soul is weaker than it needs to be to support the story. For me, the film has one fatal flaw that stands above any other nitpicks I might have, and it's one I mentioned already. The existential crisis the film fabricates for Dickens, that keeps him from finishing his story. The one that sees him determined to end his novella by killing off Tiny Tim for real and dooming Scrooge to his chains, while everyone around him tells him, you know, this Christmas book you're writing should probably end with this guy having a change of heart and the adorable Moppet not dying Jack. It's a Christmas book. Shouldn't it be hopeful? I mean, isn't that what, what, what Christmas is all about? The, the hope that in the end, our better natures will prevail. If Tiny Tim dies, then what's the point? Thank you, John. You're welcome. For reminding me why I never ask your opinion on my work. This is admittedly a made-up conflict meant to give the film an added thematic dimension and not something Dickens had to be convinced of in real life. No one's pretending otherwise. Which, hey, you know, this would not be the first biopic to inject a flight of fancy into a true story, and it will not be the last, and it is silly to grade these movies purely on their trueness. Part of me wants to agree with Dan Stevens when he tells The Guardian, frankly, whether it's historically accurate, I'm not that concerned about. I was interested in that moment of the creative process, watching a great man struggle. To me, that's dramatically and comedically interesting. Certainly, I was not keen to play Dickens as a bearded old sage. And Stevens does end up succeeding on that last count. I mean, he shows us a Dickens that we don't get to see that often. 
the young and beautiful, wavy-haired literary superstar from before the age of photographs. But injecting additional fictional struggle into this particular stage of Charles Dickens' life, over the top of plenty of actual struggle that was ripe for storytelling possibilities, does have unintended consequences. By making Charles seemingly the only person in the world who doesn't know exactly how a Christmas carol should end, and by giving him a staunch belief that the Scrooge character is worthless and his journey pointless, that he is destined to die without recognizing the error of his ways even when he's shown them, it calls into question why he is writing the first four parts of the story the way he has been writing them. It turns him from a visionary who has precisely engineered his story to lead to an earned and very cathartic outcome into someone who has somehow written a story that is supposed to have the exact opposite intent, effect, and outcome, and who happens to luck into it working when he writes a different ending overnight just before his deadline. In short, it makes him seem like a not-that-great writer, which is probably not what you want to do in your Dickens biopic. And look, depicting the act of writing in an interesting way is hard. I get the impulse to add drama to it. The two ways this film decides to make it more engaging for the viewer are certainly choices, but one, which is having him converse with his characters as if they were flesh and blood, can make him seem a little psychotic when literalized, even if this is true to how Dickens described his own process, and the other, which is having him constantly hear people say things in the real world that will end up in his novella word for word. What do you suggest we do with those people? Like this. Hmm? Are there no workhouses? Do you know how many people would rather die than go there? Then they better do it and reduce the surplus population. And this... Does anybody really celebrate it anymore, apart from our clerk, who never misses an opportunity to take a day off with pay? More or less an opportunity for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. <laughs> Adds to the, I have to imagine, unintentional perception that everyone around Dickens is actually brilliant. And the gift Charles has is having a permissive enough wife that lets him get away with spending hours in his study talking to himself so that he can turn it all into fiction. The film that The Man Who Invented Christmas reminds me of the most is actually one of my favorite films of 2021, one which debuted on Netflix in November. Another tale about an artist with a compulsive need to create that can be alienating to those around him, reckoning with the fact that he's not in his 20s anymore, and working against a ticking clock to create something that will endure beyond him. Directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the man who wrote the song nonstop, Tick Tick Boom is a musical about a man who writes musicals, Jonathan Larson, a starving artist in New York, hoping his first workshop will finally give him the breakthrough he needs on Broadway. And yes, Larson, like Dickens, like Hamilton, is in fact nonstop. What The Man Who Invented Christmas is to Dickens and A Christmas Carol, Tick Tick Boom is to Larson and Rent, a series of maybe too on the nose interactions that directly point to the great work the artist is destined to create, with the art bleeding into reality, sometimes in ways that seem uncanny. Yes, I roll my eyes a little at all the moments in Tick Tick Boom that are like, guys, listen to his answering machine messages. This is the dude who's gonna write Rent. But what distinguishes Tick Tick Boom from The Man Who Invented Christmas for me is that Larson's addiction to creation actually costs him something. Every moment he spends in his fictional creation superbia is a moment he's not connecting with his friends and his girlfriend at critical junctures in their relationships. And this does lead to breaking points that cannot be unbroken once the art is finished. 
Compare that to The Man Who Invented Christmas, which treads much of the same ground when it comes to how insufferable being the artist's significant other or friend must be, but which lets Charles off the hook with one quick redemption tour, hand-waving away the tensions and ending on a portrait of familial bliss. Which feels so dismissive of who Charles Dickens actually was in relation to Catherine Dickens, a pretty terrible, overly critical husband who would leave his family later in life, but also feels dismissive of the story about art and artists the film seems to be trying to tell. What I love about Tick Tick Boom is that, unlike The Man Who Invented Christmas, which overcomplicates Dickens' writing process and undercomplicates his life, it makes the act of creation look freeing, liberating. And it makes the act of creating, of actually finding a time and space free from distractions, large and small, to create, look confining and terrible, like something only a sadist would embrace. On that note, I think it's time for me to step away from the computer and spend some time outside the world of creation over the holidays. I believe I've got a yearly appointment to keep with a certain blue furry Charles Dickens who hangs out with a rat, and I do not want to be late for that. Thank you for listening, and I hope you and yours have the happiest of holidays. Iconography is written, produced, and edited by me, Charles Gusty. My Christmas present this year is you taking the time to listen to this. But hey, be not a shadow upon my hearth. Come out into the light and tell me what you thought about the episode. Visit our website, iconographypodcast.com. Hit us up on Twitter at iconographypod, on Instagram at iconographypodcast, and leave a rating and review on your listening platform of choice if you get the chance. Iconography is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of indie producers making some of the smartest audio stories out there. And this week, I want to recommend something new from the world's first podcast, Open Source, a show about arts, ideas, and politics. This week, George Saunders, author of Lincoln and the Bardo, talks to Christopher Lydon about how to write short stories with the poignancy of the old Russian masters, and how to become better versions of ourselves in the process. Listen at radioopensource.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.